may present from time to time, or you may not be familiar with it at all because you know of the difficulties and the challenges it may present from time to time. But if uh, I appreciate Tim's message so much last week, and uh, if it's not already on our website, I hope that you will take advantage to not only listen to it again for yourself, but also to share that with others who need to know the truth of the gospel. Uh, did an incredible job going through the first 10 chapters of Romans and summarizing that for us so that we could now continue our journey through the book of Romans. And while many of you may think, well, that would be a really hard task, I think I would rather do one chapter unless you were doing chapter 11 of Romans. But it is indeed, I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed preparing for this message, knowing the challenges that I have faced individually, having been brought up a particular way in a Baptist church, believing certain things dogmatically, and then going through my life to understand that, you know what, there's not too many people who know everything, and I was included in that group. And that as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you mature in the truth of God's word, and you see the relevance of it in a personal way, not just in one where you could program it and fit into everybody's life so that everybody is doing the same thing or anticipating the same thing. Now, obviously we do, but we want to do so in such a way where the scriptures are speaking for themselves, itself. We don't want to sort of look at Romans 11 or any other passage of scripture with some sort of grid where we're going to take our system or our approach and sort of lay it on top of a passage of scripture so we know how it fits. Now what we want to do as followers of Jesus is to take his word and allow it to speak for itself. And sometimes we're just going to have to scratch our head and say, you know, what? I just don't know how that fits with this over here. Or there might be some other areas over there. Well, I just don't think that's the way it ought to go. <laughs> and understand that where else are we going to find life than in the words of Christ? So as we look at Romans chapter 11, now you may have come to this morning and thinking, uh, having no experience with any challenges or any difficulties with Romans chapter 11. And so I apologize if I introduce to you unnecessarily something or a stumbling block for you. Uh, but hopefully as we go through, you may, even in your innocence, understand that, well, okay, I can see where there might be a, 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 maybe some issues there between one group or another. But I think what will help us more than anything is to understand what the scriptures are. Now, Paul, if I may borrow from chapter 15, verse 4, which I don't think I'm going to get that far this morning. That's not my task. But Paul tells us that the things that were written before, which in his day, he was speaking of the Old Testament, but as, as Christians, having been 2,000 years removed from the writings of Paul, we look at all the scriptures. The things that were written before were written for our instruction. In other words, the things that God inspired in the Word of God was given to us to teach us. And that through endurance, as we, in other words, as we continue on through this life, studying the word, and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. In Romans chapter 11, is given to us so that as we 
continue to endure in this life of faith as believers in Christ or as someone who is a sinner apart from Christ at this moment to understand what is required. That we endure in our faith and we seek encouragement from the scriptures so that we may have hope. We live in a world that is desperately in need of hope. We don't need another political leader. We don't need another large army. We do not need some educational system to fix everything. What we need is true hope, and that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about the scriptures, we need to understand it not as a handbook for life or a, a guide for parents to how to raise their children. We don't need to look at it as a way of this is where I'm going to learn to manage my money because the world is looking for that stuff. What the world isn't looking for is someone to save them from their sin. Now the scriptures do teach us how to raise our children. The scriptures do give us enlightenment about how to spend and use our money. The scriptures do teach us about how to live life. But if we look at the scriptures as something limited to some sort of guidebook or some handbook to life, we miss it. But if we look at it as a record of God's redemptive work through the history of mankind, we can understand every jot and tittle that he has given us, including Romans chapter 11. Anything less than looking at the scriptures as a redemptive history would make a study this morning seem inconsequential. Why am I here? I could be doing something more fun. I could be watching Charles Stanley on TV. I could be reading a book. I could be out on the beach. I could be doing all kinds of mowing my yard. It's not raining right now. So what makes this of such significance? Again, because when we read and study Romans chapter 11 or any other portion of scripture, we're being instructed about how God redeems his people. And as we endure through that teaching, and even through my preaching, which is truly a call to endure. And as we find encouragement from the scriptures, you know what God promises us? He promises us hope. So that no matter what you're facing today, or what you're dreading this week, or what you might be uncertain about tomorrow, you can have hope. However, we're often snagged when we study Romans chapter 11 into an eschatological meandering and trying to figure out what's going to happen in the latter days. How does this all fit? Let's not get the cart before the horse. Let us look and see what Romans chapter 11 has to teach us and then move on from there. Hopefully, because we're looking at this as a piece of redemptive history instruction. We will look at Romans chapter 11 as significant as we do John 3:16. And I no doubt there's not a person sitting in this auditorium or listening to the sound of my voice wherever you may be and whenever you may be listening to this. Did you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're so familiar with that because that's redemptive history. Romans chapter 11 is just as important. 
Now, as we think about redemptive history, it's good for us to understand, and I appreciate Tim's usage of charts, and the only chart that I've ever seen him use, though, however, is a timeline, uh, but that's okay. We, we, can, we still have time. The Lord hasn't come back yet. So, but Tim, on, during the equip hour, uh, we'll, and I'm sure for maybe even this afternoon, we'll do the very same thing that he's done countless times. He will start with a timeline that will, will begin at the beginning of time and will carry us through and he will try to divide it up into, for some reason, 2,000 year sections. I don't know what dispensation he was talking about there, but there is, but, but divide it up. And the reason why he does that is so that we can follow the teaching that goes through not just the book of Genesis, but throughout Scripture to understand that there was a man, Abraham. He wasn't the first man by a long shot. But there was a man through all the generations of mankind at the beginning named Abraham that was given a promise, a very specific promise about three very specific things. And that he would be a blessing to all the other nations. And that there would be another covenant that God would make. And there would be another man named Moses. Who would receive the law of God. So that we as sinful people could have the holy nature of God revealed to us. Not as a means of salvation. But just as an understanding of who we are in light of who he is. And then there's going to be another man that comes along. His name is David. He's a king. He's not the first king of Israel, but he's a king of Israel. Of, he's the first one of significance because he is a man after God's own heart. And upon his throne, there was a promise made to David and to all of God's people that there would one day come a perfect king that would sit on his throne. And then sometimes later, there was another man, unlike any other man, because this man came from heaven. This was the God-man. This is the man, Jesus Christ, the one of whom everyone before him told us about. Maybe not by name. Maybe not by every specific detail. But there was significant details that were provided for us to make no mistake that this man, Jesus Christ, or Jesus, the Messiah, the servant, the chosen one would be the fulfillment of the promise of each one going forward. But the scriptures don't stop with Jesus. The scriptures teach us about the church. The, the scriptures teach us about the end. Revelation chapter 5. We read about the end of this work of redemption. John the apostle, while being in captivity on the Isle of Patmos, received a revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And he saw the throne room of heaven in this vision, where there were 24 elders. And there were some pretty scary-looking creatures, if you were to follow his description of them. And what were these elders and what were these creatures doing? They were singing a new song that went like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. This is redemption. Redemption didn't come through earning a ticket or getting a certain amount of education 
or getting a particular social status. Redemption would come and does come through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain. And if you're here this morning, you first time, maybe you've heard this before, but you need to understand there is no redemption. As we have been singing about this morning, there is no redemption apart from the blood that was shed from Christ on the cross to ransom people for God. Now, who would be ransomed? This whole course of redemptive history from beginning to end, from the first inception of prophecy back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, all the way to the end here in Romans chapter or Revelation chapter 5, in which we see the final picture of the throne room of heaven. Who are the ransomed people for God that John sees or that they're singing about? Well, they tell us. They're from every tribe and language and people and nation. And they sing, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what we have hope in. You see, as we endure in finding encouragement from the scriptures, we find hope. Hope in what? Hope that one day our redemption is fulfilled completely and we're with Christ forever. Now let's think a little bit, and again, you may be saying, Mark, I thought you wanted us to turn to Romans chapter 11. And yes, eventually we'll get there. Maybe next week, but some, somewhere along the way we'll get there. But hopefully we'll find this very helpful to understand that the people that have been redeemed for God are from every tribe, every language group, every people group, and every nation. Let's get a better understanding of what the scriptures mean by that. Well, first of all, the idea of tribe literally means to be an offshoot from. It's typically what we consider to be racial, kindred, family, relatives. Pastor Charlie thinks of his Native American group, they were a tribe because they were kin. They were of the same family group. And so there's going to be, the scriptures say, from every family group, there will be people redeemed. It also tells us from every language group, because we realize that there are groups of people that don't just associate and, and fix their social order around people that they're related to biologically. But there are people who are in the same group because they speak the same language. If you go to a different country where they do not speak English as a first language, you find yourself very isolated very quickly. However, as soon as you can find somebody who, as I did when we were in Mexico one time, I found someone who was very patient with me, and I started using my two years of high school Spanish, which equivalates to about two days' worth of study. And they were just smiling at me as I would put together very, very broken sentences with my very, very rudimentary understanding of the Spanish language. But even in that sense, there was a, a bond that was formed, even though I wasn't fluent in Spanish and I didn't continue speaking that way. I was very thankful that they knew a little bit of English. But there's associations that we make through language and there's not a, a single language group, which is amazing to me because you know how many languages there are in the world today? More than you can count. 
There are languages that haven't been discovered yet, but God hasn't lost track. And the scriptures teach us that from every language, there will be ransom people for God. We also have that word people, which is sort of a generic word. Basically, people that are gathered in a certain section, they just happen to be in the same place. And then there's that term nation. Very interesting term, nation. We have mostly grown up in a Western civilization in which when we think about nation, we think about geographical boundaries. If this person lives in within a certain latitude and longitude in Europe, we would say they're German. Or if they, over in this section, we might say that they are Peruvian. But that's not exactly what the term nation represents. <clears throat> Basically, it's a combination of things of whether it be ethnics or ethics, I'm, I'm sorry, ethnic groups, people groups, people that have customs that are in common. But in scripture, it's a word that's typically used of the non-Jew. Not because Jews were not considered a nation, but you have to understand through this whole record of redemptive history that the Jewish people were distinct. They were called out from all the other, what? Nations. So when we think about the nation of Israel, Again, this is kind of difficult for us because of the days in which we live. We're not talking about geographical boundaries. We're not talking about the people who live in that little sliver of property that's bordered on the west side by the Mediterranean Sea and by the Middle East on the eastern side. We're talking about a nation of people that have all of these things in common. They have their language. Hebrew. They have their customs that are found within the scriptures. And unlike most any other group on the face of the planet on which we live today, they can all trace their lineage back to one man. Now I know that there's some folks in the Middle East who want to consider themselves descendants of Abraham, but even when you think about the Muslim people, this religion is so uh, childlike in age compared to the Jewish faith that they're not even close. They can sort of grasp for being descendants of Abraham, knowing that Abraham did have a son, Ishmael, that they were descendants of, but that's about it. When you talk to a Jew, they're going back to the tribe. They're going back to their heritage. This is the nation of Israel. That little geographical perspective, or that little place over in the Middle East that we know as Israel, as a country, only 75%. Now, I only say 75%, but it's not like the whole country is Jewish. Their capital city of Jerusalem and their most holy religious site is inhabited by Muslims. So before we get into Romans chapter 11, which maybe we'll do before the day's over, Let's understand that when we talk about Israel, we're not talking about a geographical location in our present current world. We're talking about a nation, a people group, people with their own ethnicity, their own language, their own biological heritage back to Abraham. Okay? Real people.
Now, having said all that, in Romans chapter 9, we're thrown a curveball, theologically speaking. After going through a theological discourse through the book of Romans, Paul is finding himself within this church in Rome that is mixed with both Jewish believers and Gentile believers of having to go back and, and argue, well, well, then has God just completely forsaken his people? Who are these people? Who are the Jewish people? If Paul's spending so much time that the flag that they're, if I can use the analogy from Tim last week, if the flag that's waving on their ship is not that important, then are the people important anymore? Why do we even have these distinctions? And Paul even says in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, but it is not as though the word of God has failed in that when he gave it to the Jewish people and that the result didn't bring about their whole salvation. It's not as if the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. So you're telling me that these people who have a, a biological heritage and that they have cultural values and they have a language that's all their own, that not everybody that's part of that group are, are Jewish? And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, are part of the nation of Israel? He goes on to say, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So not only do we have this real people group that are biologically attached to, to Abraham, well, not all of them really count because they really don't believe in what Abraham believed. And those of us who do believe what Abraham believed, we're counted as if we're one of them. For those of you who didn't think there's anything confusing about Romans chapter 11, here you go. This is why we find ourselves at such a head-scratching stage to try to figure out what in the world is going on. Hopefully, in the next 20 minutes or so, we can figure that out. See, I just put myself in a box. Every one of you just wrote down. He said 20 minutes. Uh, I'm just kidding. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, I ask them, has God rejected his people? Has he? Up to this point, Paul, you're making a pretty good argument. Paul says, in the strongest way possible, by no means. Absolutely not. There is no possible way that God has rejected his people. And Paul uses himself as an example. For I am myself an Israelite. If God has rejected his people, Paul would say, I'm not a believer because I'm an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. See, we often think of foreknowledge as some sort of New Testament way of explaining our salvation. Foreknowledge is, is an eternal concept in God's mind with his people Israel. He chose them out of all the other nations. And Paul is saying God has not rejected them. Because they rejected God doesn't mean that God rejected them. Which leads us into, hopefully, a really 
good appreciation for who we are as people of God. For he goes on and continues in verse 2, Do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. He's referring back to 1 Kings chapter 19. A very familiar, if you've been to Bible school or Sunday school at all in your life, you have probably been taught the lesson of the Elijah, the prophet of Israel, against the prophets of Baal. And after this tremendous victory, Elijah sees uh, not only the altars consumed, but all the prophets consumed. And you would think that everything was great, but at the end of the day, off this great spiritual high, Elijah's like, well, that means I'm the only one left. Even though I was one of many prophets, I was the only one true. But now that all the bad prophets are gone, I must be the only one. And Paul uses this idea in Elijah's mind of thinking that he was all alone to explain to the nation of Israel that they're not all gone. For he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? God said to Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, one idea we need to think about is we talk about the salvation of Israel. We need to remember that Paul is saying here, number one, that there is a present remnant of which he is a part of. Now, the term remnant, interestingly enough, is used over 50 times in the prophets in the Old Testament. Why is that significant? Because most of the prophets that we have record of in the scriptures are either predicting or living through the exile. What was the exile for? Well, in God's plan of redemption, the exile was because God's people had disobeyed him to the point where he finally said, okay, enough's enough. I told you if you disobeyed me that I would send you into a land of captivity again, and that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians came, the Assyrians came, And so when we think about um, that idea of remnant, it was a word of encouragement to those who were taken into captivity. Because think about it. If you were this people group and you had disobeyed your God and you said, you know, I finally had it. I'm going to send you into exile because I'm judging you. Oh, no, that's the end of us. Well, God's message of hope was, no, I've got a remnant. And this is a common theme, particularly in the book of Isaiah, in which the words of judgment are harsh. But there is a message of hope in that there is a remnant. And Paul is saying, just like in Elijah's day, there was a remnant. Today, there is still a remnant chosen by grace. Even when we think in Jeremiah chapter 42, there's a section in which during this time of exile, there were still a few Israelites left in the land that had not been taken away into captivity yet. And some of the leaders came to the prophet Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, would you seek from the Lord what it is that we should do? 
because we're seeing all our brothers and sisters being taken away in captivity. What should we to be safe? And so Jeremiah tells them after he hears from the Lord, he says, make sure that you don't trust in the, in the rulers of Egypt. If you just stay put, if you trust the Lord, I'll take care of you. The, the Assyrians will go right on through. They won't bother you and you'll be fine. However, if you go to Egypt and expect the Egyptians to protect you from me or from, their, from the Assyrians, then you're going to wind up in trouble. Well, the smart person would say, okay, Jeremiah, we asked you to tell us what the Lord said. You said the Lord told us not to trust in Egypt. We'll stay put. But like most of us, we look at our circumstances. And we say there's absolutely no way that we're going to survive if we stay put when the Assyrians come through. So guess what they did? They trusted in the Egyptians, and guess what happened? They were defeated. Many of them were killed. Others were taken into captivity. But even there, even there, the Lord has said unto you, O remnant of Judah, <laughs> there was still a remnant. But there's another Old Testament uh, reference that Paul uses to speak about the fact that there is a present remnant. What then? Verse 7. Romans chapter 11, verse 7. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As is written in Isaiah chapter 29. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, in Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What Paul is alluding to here from the Old Testament is that one, because of their disobedience, God said, you know, I, he even told Isaiah when he commissioned him to preach. They're not going to listen to you because I'm going to stop their ears and I'm going to close their eyes. It's an act of judgment. They've been so disobedient that even when they hear someone preach the truth, that they're not going to really hear it. They're not going to be able to see the truth of it. It's not going to affect their lives. It's only going to condemn them in their rejection of God. And David's reference is about the table in a trap in which they're when we think about what a table is in New Testament times, it would be a place of enjoyment, of entertainment, of fellowship. And God was going to use it as David prayed for his enemies. Say, bring them in. Make them think that they're about to enjoy a feast, but it turns out to be their doom. It was a snare. The things that appealed to their flesh were used to draw them into a time of destruction. And that is ultimately what is going to happen when God, through Christ, returns. Matthew chapter 23 records these words from Jesus Christ. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel and to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And when we look back in history in the year 70 AD, you know what happened to Israel? It was plundered 
the Romans came, and just as Jesus predicted that every stone on this temple would be brought down, it was destroyed. They understood that these Jews who found a feasting table of getting rid of the Savior Jesus Christ by crucifying him on a cross was a snare. It became their destruction. And please understand that there is coming an ultimate day of destruction. The day of the Lord is coming in which all the enemies of God will be brought in thinking that they're in control, thinking that they have manipulated and taken control over everything in their means and are enjoying the, 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 the pleasures of this world. There's coming a day of reckoning. But in spite of that, when you think of all the turmoil that the nation of Israel has experienced over the years. The persecution that the nation of Israel has experienced. The Jewish people have been brought through. The enemies that they have throughout the history of the world. There is coming a day. There is coming a day in which Jesus Christ will judge. When he returns. So we need to understand that all the things that have happened to the Jewish people over the course of history has not eliminated them, but there's still a remnant. Paul said that he was part of it. Verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Did you catch that? God's work of redemption has taken this group of people that he has chosen from all the nations, the smallest, the weakest, the most insignificant nation of all the nations. He chose them. knowing that they would reject him in so many ways, would in turn make the, the people that he used to reach, that is the Gentiles, we were talking to CGG this morning, Cornelius being an example of that, going on to the church at Antioch and all the other Gentiles, that God would use the salvation of us Gentiles to make Israel jealous. To wake them up to understanding what their true love is. But not only that, but their trespass means riches for the world. Not only that, or their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Not only that, but how much were their full inclusion mean? They're going to be completely included in the work of redemption. Now Paul says in verse 13 to the church, now Gentiles, I'm speaking to you right now. Because there may be some of you who think that you're the special people now and God has completely forgotten Israel because you found grace. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. 
and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so, it, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And then he goes into talking about this idea of grafting. Grafting is a horticultural technique in which you will take tissues of a separate plant and join it into the stem of a living plant so that they grow not as two separate plants in the same place, but as one plant. So Paul says, but if some of the branches were broken off, that is, if Israel were broken off, so that I might be grafted in, that's true. If God wants to take this plant, if you will, and he, as he speaks about even to his disciples, if it's not producing fruit, what happens? It's pruned. Unproductive branches are burned. So if God wants to take this plant of salvation, if you will, and prune some Israelites out because they're dead, and then he takes some lifeless plants and grafts them in so that they now have life in the same source of life, the Spirit of God, then that's true. They were broken off, that is, because of their unbelief, speaking of Israel. But you... The Gentiles stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. Don't make their mistake. But fear. Remind yourselves. And can it be? I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me who caused his pain? Amazing love. How can it be that you know the rest, right? Thou my God should die for me? You can't sing that with pride and arrogance in your heart. You will be humbled to know that it's amazing grace that gives us promises for us to hold on to and our hopes secured by. So don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are remembered, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. That's the truth. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Wow. <laughs> Does that wake you up? Does that remind you of Hebrews chapter 6? That doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. It just simply means that you will be proven to be someone who is not a believer. 
Note the kindness, verse 22, and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Incredible. He splices them all. But he doesn't completely disregard them all. Because there's still a present remnant that he's still going to, by his grace, choose to say, let's put them back in. Let's take the ones who were from the original stem and trunk that I've taken off because of their unbelief, but I'm going to craft them back in. Now, we're not speaking individually here. We're speaking corporately here. Understand that. There's not going to be somebody that loses their salvation and God says, oh, I'm going to save you again. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's speaking about a nation of people, a group of people that some thought were being completely abandoned by God because of their disobedience as a group of people. But there will be those of Israel that will be grafted back in. Verse 24, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You want to know what that means? Seek out a, a, a Jew who's been saved. Talk to somebody who is Jewish, a biological descendant of Abraham, who grew up a dry, liberal Jewish person who only went through the rituals, but they found the person of Jesus Christ to save them from their sins so that now they understand that he is the personification of the servant that the prophet Isaiah spoke about, the one who died for their sins and redeems them and gives them life. Those have, Pastor Charlie was talking about new Christians, they have a vibrancy that those of us who are Gentiles, we just don't have. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It doesn't mean we're not the same Holy Spirit. It just means that they understand what it means to be part of the original trunk being taken away and then placed back in. How much more, Paul says, will they be cultivated and be part of life? You see, Romans chapter 11 is speaking about the salvation of the Jews as a part of redemptive history. And he continues on in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Oh, so in other words, and what mystery means is it's not Scooby-Doo. It's mystery as in something that hasn't been revealed yet. Scripture has not enlightened you about what's taking place yet. But now Paul is drawing back the curtain so that you can see, not the Wizard of Oz, who's a sham, some trickster who's trying to take somebody's money draw him back the curtain and say here this gracious God of salvation the one who has brought a partial hardening partial not in the sense that they weren't all the way hard but just that only certain ones were hardened as is written, uh, or I'm sorry, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I intentionally did not leave any room for this ex you know, exposition of this particular phrase because that's where all of our eschatological problems come from. Because trying to figure out 
when has or when is or when will the fullness of the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. But in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the liberal will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrecoverable. I'm sorry. I knew that I was going to mess this up. Irrecoverable. You like that? They can't be taken back. You like that? The things that God has given, he doesn't take away. For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, they, that the mercy of God might be shown to you. Isn't this funny? I said 20 minutes. And it reminded me my 20 minutes are up. But what this little device doesn't know, I'm not finished yet. Y'all knew that. This didn't know that. You see, I'm trying. I'm really making an effort. I'm trying. For they too have been now been disobedient or that you may be shown mercy to you. They may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. No matter how disobedient you are, no matter how many times you rejected God's mercy and kindness and grace, if you're his, you will find mercy. Which brings us to my last point. There's a present remnant. There's a redemptive purpose for us as Gentiles. There is an eventual coming together of all of us together. There's a one purpose. Verse 33. Hold the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things how dare we ask God to explain to us why he does what he does? Shame on us for not trusting an all-perfect, wise, good God when we don't have the ability to understand the eternal significance of everything that he does. Shame on us. Shame on me. God's work of salvation is of grace. Who are we to ask him to explain it to us? Who are we to get him to fit it in our box? Who are we to question his love and his mercy and his tenderness and his great compassion for his people? 
were from him and through him and to him. It's everything. Everything. Your house, my car, your job, your health, my education, our relationships, this church, from him, through him, to him. Because they're all a part of something more significant than your three score and ten. Something more significant than what you can accomplish in this life. No matter how good you have it or how bad you experience it. No matter what we can do to understand the times in which we live. We are one part of a huge, infinite, eternal work of redemption. And he has graciously, mercifully, and with kindness given us his word. So that as we study it, and as we endure with it, we might find hope. You notice? Not a whole. Oh, it all makes sense to me now. <laughs> I get it. Oh, oh yeah. Now everything fits. I don't have any problem trusting God anymore because now I, I got it all up here. No. Because now in my soul, I trust Him. I trust Him. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knee to the Father. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus here. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That would cover nations, languages, tribes, people. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer for the church is that we would take Romans chapter 11. And while we don't understand all the implications, we don't know exactly what is meant by the fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Does that mean it happened when Rome invaded Israel? Does that mean that it's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes again? Does that mean there's going to be seven years of tribulation before there's a rapture of the church? Does that mean the rapture of the church is going to happen before seven years of tribulation? I don't know. But what I do know is that God is in the business of saving people. And until Jesus Christ comes back, he's not finished. But when Jesus Christ comes back, those for whom he died, for those 
for whom he shed his blood so that there might be people saved for God will be saved. And I've got the rest of my life to try to figure out the length and the breadth and the height of the love of God so that I might be able to, with Christ dwelling in my heart by faith, love him, serve him. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm so thankful. You did not wait for me to gain a good understanding or a complete knowledge of your work. But I thank you that you have given to me and to your people, to the world, your word, so that we might understand that you are saving people and saving people and saving people. And by your grace, you have saved us. I pray, Lord, that should there be someone here under the sound of my voice that doesn't connect with them, they may understand that they make mistakes and they're not perfect, but they never come to the conclusion that as a sinful person that they have offended you. They're an enemy of yours. And if nothing changes, they will pay an eternal weight of judgment. May they see Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who shed his blood to redeem such people for you, your handiwork, your work of grace that they would humbly come to the cross repenting of their sinfulness and placing every ounce of faith and dependence on the work of Jesus Christ to satisfy your demand for righteousness, knowing that they can't. There's nothing that they can do, nothing that they can earn, nothing that they can be that will ever be enough, but that Jesus Christ can be their righteousness, that he can be their hope and stay. Their solid rock, their savior, who continues today by grace, calling through your spirit, enabling, so that we might know you. Help us, Lord, today to glorify you for being the one from which everything is, through which everything is, and which to everything is. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brother Mark.